If you guys have a Bible, open up to the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we have a lot of stuff to cover this morning, so I don't want to waste a lot of time. Uh, we are going to read the passage uh, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 11 down to about verse 11. Um, I'm going to pray that we'll get to work on this. Uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at the life of Jesus through the eyes of this man by the name of Mark. Uh, he's one of four Gospels that tells us the story of Jesus. Mark's particular take is that Mark wants for us to see the story of Jesus being the fulfillment of what it looks like for God, God himself, to actually become the king. He starts his gospel off by basically telling us that. That's where he's going. He removes any hidden agenda. He wants us to know from the very beginning that this is really what he wants to do. He wants for us to understand what it looks like when God actually become, becomes king. What will that look like? What type of kingdom will it be? What will the kingdom feel like? What will it look like? Will it be like every other kingdom? Will it feel like Pharaoh's in charge? Will it feel like Obama's in charge? Will it feel like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's in charge? What will it look like for God to actually be king? That's what we've been looking at over the past several months. We are around message number 40. So we've been going at this for quite some time. So I'm going to read the passage. We'll pray. Then we'll get to work. Verse 1 says this. And that when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, they came to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will enter it and find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring, uh, and if anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Then say, The Lord has need of it, and then send, back, send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And then some of those that were standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? And then they told them exactly what Jesus had said, and they let, her, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and then Jesus sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread their leafy branches, and they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem, and he went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, uh, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. God, we ask you right now that you would help us to understand what your word has to say. God, we pray that we would have more than just simple information going into our hearts. God, we pray that we would have our eyes open. And that we would be able to see just the clear picture of what Mark wants us to see and ultimately what the Holy Spirit wants us to know. That we'd be changed. That the gospel would transform us. God, in our lives, so many of us, um, we know what it means to live lives for ourselves. And we haven't been good kings. We make a mess of our lives. And we find ourselves stuck sometimes. We don't know what to do. We don't know where to go. We don't know how to proceed. We don't know how to get out of debt. Maybe there's been foreign masters over us. Things like money, things like debt, things like addictions that we don't know how to conquer, we don't know how to beat. And yet, Jesus, you've come to rescue us. You've come to set us free. So, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, help us to see Jesus as a redeemer, as a savior, and yet ultimately as a loving redeemer and a savior who actually has true compassion and love for us. So we give you this time and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, today I want to basically be asking three questions. So I'll just be straight up front and let you get, know where I'm going to be heading. Um, three questions I'll be taking a look at. The first two questions uh, will be able to be answered by the passages that we had just read and some other passages that we'll be taking a look at. Um, the first, and then the last question ultimately is one that only um, really an examination of your own life can you answer it. In other words, uh, it's a personal question. So the first question that we'll take a look at is really what was Jesus' role? What did Jesus do uh, in this particular scenario? Because what we'll see... And it's pretty dense. I'll just be straight up front and tell you, and, and I'll kind of uh, let you know just ahead of time as well. I need you guys to kind of think with me a little bit. Um, there's other passages that we can look at. are pretty simple, pretty straightforward. This passage actually is very insanely dense. In other words, it taps into many, many large, enormous Old Testament themes and actually quotes scripture from the Old Testament that's intended to tap into these Old Testament themes. And it's, it's like... 
theologically charged. It's huge. It's a huge concept, huge subject that I want for us to take a look at. So with that being said, um, again, first of all, we'll ask the question, what was Jesus' role? Second question we'll take a look at is what was his followers' response? His, his followers respond in a particular way. And then finally, we'll take a look at what is your response? In other words, if Jesus is this king, um, and Jesus' own followers responded to him as king, if he is indeed king, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you plead who he is? Like, what do you claim him to be? Is he just a good teacher? Is he just a nice guy that came along several hundred, you know, thousand years ago and did some great things? Is just kind of gives you a nice little moral lesson to live by? Um, who do you say Jesus is, in other words? And so the first question, let's begin to tackle because it's kind of the most dense and I want to spend a little bit of time taking a look at this. Um, again, what was Jesus's role? Uh, last week, I began to kind of give you guys a little bit of an idea to think about, that Jesus actually saw himself fulfilling something. Jesus wasn't just some teacher that came onto the scene and did stuff. Jesus actually saw himself living out something, doing something, fulfilling something. It's one of the reasons why Jesus oftentimes throughout his ministry, he'll say things like this, um, this is that which was fulfilled by the scripture. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, in short, uh, it's kind of like an actor living according to a script. That's kind of similar to the way, if you want to liken it to that, that's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I'm living according to a script, although I'm not an actor. I'm the real thing. I've come to do something. I've come to be something. I've come to live according to the scripture, not just some sort of vague notion of what spirituality is. Jesus' whole point is that he's come to live according to the actual scripture to fulfill it to be something for somebody else. In this case, we'll see that what Jesus has come to do is to be for Israel what Israel has failed to do, do for herself. So when I ask the question, what was Jesus' role, this is really what I'm trying to understand. Maybe even to better clarify this, um, I want to kind of take a look at the next slide to kind of ask a couple questions. There's three prophetic themes that the Bible, um, from the very beginning actually, sort of highlight. And uh, I know whenever you sort of... Um, Take a big text and sort of turn it into synopsis. You, you lose a lot of resolution, and I, I don't want to do that, but for the sake of brevity and time that we have together, unless you guys want like an 18-hour Bible study, I'm just going to have to do this for you guys for the sake of this, but I'll try to touch into some of the larger themes, and hopefully it'll begin to make sense. These three major themes are all throughout the Old Testament and ultimately seem to be pointing to this very moment in the Gospel of Mark. The first theme is that we see is the promise of the end of exile. All the prophets talk about this. And to understand what this means and why this is important, you got to go all the way back to the very beginning of the garden. What exile means is that somebody who is in a particular state, a particular status, a particular place, is no longer in that status. So let's say you're a king, living on a, in a kingdom, on a throne, you got a lot of money, but somebody else has come in and usurped your authority. You're no longer king and you've been taken away from your kingdom and you've been sent off to some dark prison or an island or in a desert uh, or to live with your mother-in-law. And you are now in exile. You're no longer on your throne. You're in exile. You're not in your place of honor in the place where you would consider home. That's what exile is. Exile is being away from home. So from the very beginning of the book of, uh, book of Genesis, we see God created Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were part of uh, creation, which God said is very good. They were home. They were in the garden. It was paradise. God gave them everything. But Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve turned away from God. Adam and Eve questioned God's goodness, questioned God's love, and in turn, basically, more or less, became their own kings, became their own captains, became their own leaders, and as a result, walked away from God, and one of the important things that we see in the book of Genesis is that when God banished them or exiled them from the garden, God set up a sword in front of the garden. It was a flaming sword held by an archangel or by an angel, and then God basically said, no one can ever enter back into this garden without going under the sword or paying a great price. So Adam and Eve are the very first of this prototype of being exiled. But we see the same thing uh, oftentimes appear throughout the Old Testament. Children of Israel, and I'm just going to kind of, for, again, sake of brevity, fast forward. Uh, there was a time when the children of Israel became, became a, a, a powerful nation. And God gave them kings to rule over their nation because they requested kings. And so God gave them kings, but the kingdom was sort of quickly divided. 
In other words, there was a civil war. And literally, Israel was divided into the north and the south. As a result of that, you had lots of different kings spanning over several hundred years. Some of those kings were really good. They loved God. Um, one of them comes to my mind, a guy named Josiah. Great king, young guy, loved God, did a good job. Most of the kings were evil. Most of the kings didn't love God. Most of the kings encouraged the people to worship and serve false gods and encouraged the people to turn their back on the true and living God that brought them out of Egypt, that made promises to them. And most of those kings ultimately led the children of Israel down a path that was away from God. What God did is God made a promise. He said to the people of Israel, he says, if and when you turn away from me, um, I will exile you. You will be sent off and there will be foreign invaders that will come in that will overtake you and you will be sent away from the land. And this is exactly what happened. The children of Israel, uh, several hundred years before Jesus was alive um, on the planet, they were sent off into the region of Babylon. And probably some of you that might be a little bit familiar either, either with your Bibles or either with history are familiar with the Babylonian um, superpower, world superpower, modern day Iraq. And so what had happened in prior to, you know, after the, was, was the Persians as well, but what had happened was the children of Israel were taken away from their homeland. They were exiled. They weren't able to plant crops and enjoy the Mediterranean Sea and surf and do all these amazing things that God promised to them that they wouldn't even promise them to surf, but it's my nice little addition right there. But the point of the matter is, is they were taken away from their land. They were taken off into exile as a result of this. All the prophets prophesied that one day God would restore the children of Israel from their exile. The second thing that we see in terms of a theme is the defeat of enemy. Now, in the first century, when Jesus was alive and Jesus' followers were following him, who do you think the number one en enemy was in the mind of the Jews? Guesses? Caesar. Right? It was the Romans. And it was a horrible occupation. Nobody liked the Romans. All right? I mean, I should say all the Jews. None of the Jews liked the Romans. I mean, imagine living in your own little homeland, your own territory. All right? It's your place. It's your special land. And all of a sudden, a foreign invader comes in. You're no longer free. I've said this before. It'd be like if the Canadians came in and attacked America, came all the way down to San Luis Obispo, and they set up like posts, outposts, and have a bunch of these Canadians hanging around town, speaking kind of an interesting foreign language, and you are now under their weighty oppression. Hey. And that would be the way life would be. No one would like it. They're taking your money. They're taking your taxes. They're saying, we need your money because we need to fund everything back at home. And you resent that. You don't like that, but you have no choice. You have no choice. This is the way children of Israel were. So if you were to ask children of Israel who the enemy is or was, in their mind, they would say the enemy was Rome. So again, these ancient prophecies that span from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, again, there, it's, it's, there's so many uh, verses that, you know, I, I, my encouragement would be to just read those to get the theme, to get the flavor of it. Uh, yes, I can point out one or two different verses, but the point of the matter is it's, it's a theme. It's an overall theme that God would one day uh, bring the people back from exile, defeat the great enemy, and then finally, this is, this is where it gets a little bit dense, is that the Lord would return himself to Zion. Okay, this is where it gets a little bit complicated. Before the children of Israel went off into slavery, I should say, into Babylonian exile, uh, the children of Israel had this uh, unbelievable temple. It was a beautiful temple that Solomon had actually built. Some of you might be, remember that if you read your Bible before, you're familiar with that. Solomon, David's son, built this incredible temple. It was beautiful. But what had happened was they became very wealthy, very rich, and when the Babylonians invaded, they stole everything from that temple. Because the majority of the instruments and items and candlesticks and everything in that temple was made out of gold or silver or bronze or something that was precious. So you can imagine this foreign invading army, the Babylonians, come in and they take every single sacred item out of your temple. It's gone. God made these promises as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 17 to 18. He told his people, he says, listen, as you guys are my people and you walk with me, you love me, you obey me, you live according to my word, I'll honor you, I'll bless you, I'll be a shield about you, I'll protect you. You walk away from me, though, you turn away from me, I will remove my shield, you will go into exile, you will walk away, you will walk away from my protective hand, my covering over you, and as a result of that, my presence, my glory, my Shekinah, my, 
my very weighty presence itself will depart. And there comes a time in the book of, Jeremiah, uh, book of Ezekiel that this prophecy comes to pass where Ezekiel sees these wheels, these like a chariot wheels turning, and it's this picture of God, the glory of God, departing from the temple. And when the temple was ransacked and destroyed and all the gold and silver and bronze and precious things were taken away back to Babylon and it was nothing more than just an empty shell and they tore it down and broke it to pieces, the children of Israel were told in the book of Jeremiah, the book of Lamentations, for example, is written by Jeremiah. The word Lamentations simply means weeping because it's the story of Jeremiah sitting on a rock Looking over a city, kind of like if you were, if San Luis was being destroyed and you're sitting up on the top of, you know, Madonna Mountain over it and you see fire everywhere and everything's destroyed and broken and being burned, you'd just be weeping like, I love San Luis and it's gone. The Canadians did it. This is horrible. That's what Jeremiah did. Jeremiah is weeping over his nation, over his city as he watches the Babylonians destroy everything. It's like the glory of God is gone. God made these promises. He says, my glory will one day return. I won't abandon my people, Israel, forever, because I will come back. I will return. So that leads to the next three uh, things that we'll take a look at very quickly, which is questions that were on everybody's mind, because it basically summarizes it in this way. The children of Israel were expecting two things. One, they were expecting a king. This king would be from the lineage of David. But David was the first great king. He wasn't the first real king. King Saul was the first king. And then came David. David was like this unbelievable king. He's kind of like a George Washington of the children of Israel. Like when we think about the best president or the iconic president of America, we think of George Washington or Lincoln, right? Um, the children of Israel, when they think about the king of all kings, the great king, they, they think of David. If you go to Israel today, everything is named after King David. There's like King David liquor stores, if you're on the Mediterranean Sea, there's like King David surf shops. It's absolutely crazy. King David candy bars. Everything is named after King David. It's unbelievable that everybody loves King David. He's like this iconic king. But there's a reason for that. It's because there was a promise that God made to David that through David would be a kingdom or a king that would rise up that would have no end. That the king that would come out of David's lineage would never would never end. This king that would one day come out of David would be the king of kings. He would be the ultimate king. He would be the ultimate king to rule over all things, not wickedly, not taking advantage of the poor in order to prop himself up, to make himself great at the expense of others. But this king would be a good king. He would rule rightly, righteously, justly. He would establish justice. And all the Old Testament prophets prophesy this. That this king, when he comes, he will free the people from their exile, bring them back into their home, and he would defeat the great enemies. So, again, the secondary strain was this thought that also, simultaneously, God would return. Now, most Jews, I don't think, believed that the king, that they had the belief that the king that would one day rule and reign, and God were one and the same. I think they probably saw them as distinct. That God, the way that God typically would always work throughout Hebraic history, would be that God would actually work through agents. So in other words, Moses was a deliverer. Was Moses God? Moses wasn't God. Moses was an agent of God. He was working on behalf of God. The priests and the priestly system, was the priest God? No. The priest was working on behalf of God. He was an agent of God. He was working for God, employed by God. Most Jews... Uh, when they thought about a king, they wouldn't necessarily think of a king that would come as being God. They would think of a king as coming and being an agent of God. He would bring justice. He would bring righteousness. He would work in collaboration with God to do what's right, just like David did, just like the priests did, just like Moses did, just like every other leader did or the judges did throughout the entire history of the people of Israel. So you have two strains. One, looking for, expecting a king to come that would end the exile and deliver them from their, their wicked foes. The other one would be that this promise that one day God would return and bring back his glory into and among his people, Israel. And they would be changed. They would be transformed. So with that being said, we see that basically there were three questions that was probably on everybody's mind. 
Questions likely to be asked would be these. Uh, when would this delivering king come? You know, when is he going to come? So imagine here you are, first century, uh, you are in the middle of, of you know, Israel or Jerusalem, and you are sick and tired of this Roman occupation. You're tired of them taking advantage of the weak. You're tired of them exercising control and power and authority over you. You're tired of them taking your taxes. You're just fed up. I mean, talk about like the original like Occupy Jerusalem, Occupy movement. Like these, they were just sick and tired of the Roman occupation, and they were ready to be done with it. So they were, their only hope was for a king, a true king, a rightful king that would come in the exile and overthrow evil. So they'd be asking the question, when will this delivering king come? This was on the minds of every Jew. When's the king going to come? When's God going to make good on his promises? When, God, when is God going to bring the son of David that's going to rule and reign over us? Second question is this, is when would the glory of God return? If God made a promise that one day his presence, his glory would one day return, when's that going to happen? Because right now, all we're doing, we're just doing religious work. We have the temple. Even though we have a temple, it was a temple that was made by Herod. Herod was not a good man. Um, Herod tried to become a king over the people of Israel. He's a really wicked guy. Most of the Jews hated Herod. In fact, remember, that's how John the Baptist died, um, is that John the Baptist uh, said to one of Herod's sons that he was not really the rightful king and ultimately lost his head over it as a result of that. So the point of the matter is, is that they were waiting for, longing for the glory of God to one day be restored. Then the final question, really, that I'm sure they would be asking is that what should we be looking for? What, what are the credentials, in other words? What are the credentials of a king? Like, is he going to just show up one day? Voila, there's the king. He's in a robe. Um, what, what are they supposed to look for? Like, if, if you're going to be the king, and you're going to start a kingly movement, um, what's the criteria that you need to sort of uh, fulfill in order to do this? And so, in a lot of the Jewish people's minds, they're looking for, and even John the Baptist asked this, because remember when John the Baptist was in prison? Uh, he's now beginning to question, really, whether or not Jesus really is the king. So he sends his disciples to Jesus, like, are you the one, or should we look for another? And Jesus sends back a message. He says, go tell John, the blind receive their sight, and the, uh, the lame are being healed. What Jesus is saying is that the true credentials of the true king, the true king, is that he will right that which is wrong. He will heal that which is deformed. He will take that which is broken and bring restoration. That was Jesus' way. It was a cryptic way of basically saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the one. I've come. I haven't forgotten you. Why was John asking that question, by the way? Just kind of a total side note, because John's in prison. And sometimes when you're in prison, sometimes when you're bound, sometimes when you're suffering, that's when you oftentimes most wonder, God, do you love me? God, do you have power? God, are you really there? Do you really listen to me? Are you really powerful enough to heal me, to help me, to take my wounded heart and restore it? That's what John was doing, the same thing. So the point of the matter is this, is that these would have been the questions that they would have been asking. And what Jesus does, now back to the text, Jesus then, as he comes into the region of Jerusalem, which by the way, we saw last week, Jesus was on in the area of um, the city of Jericho. Now Jericho was about, I don't know, six to 10 miles away from Jerusalem. Now I want you to think of it this way. Um, Jericho, is actually one of the lowest cities on the planet, all right? Um, Israel, or I should say Jerusalem, not the highest city, but it is 2,500 feet above sea level. So imagine a distance, 2,500 feet, and the lowest city, I don't know, 600 feet below sea level, um, and here you have an eight-mile distance. That's a huge, steep climb. So Jesus leaves Jericho, and he's on this huge, steep climb going up to the city of Jerusalem. And as he goes there, he tells his disciples as they're approaching this area called the Mount of Olives, which is sort of this, um, it, it, the, it's, Israel's beautiful, by the way. If you've never been there, you've got to take a trip to go there someday. Um, one of my most favorite memories of being in Israel was literally coming up this road from the Jordan Valley up to the Mount of Olives, where you overlook the entire city. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. I mean, it literally goes from desert where there's absolutely nothing. It's like riding out on a 41. You know what I'm talking about? Highway 41, where there's nothing, like tumbleweed. That's the only thing that's out there, one or two of them. And then finally you go into this like lush oasis. That's Jerusalem. That's the way it is. It's, it's, it's inexplicable because you go from total desert to just lush beauty in just a matter of moments. And here you are kind of on this huge precipice overlooking 
the city of Jerusalem, and Jesus then starts this descent called the Mount of Olives going into the city of Jerusalem, but he tells his disciples, I need a donkey. Go, go get me a, a donkey, and I'm going to ride on that. So I'm sure that the disciples are like, that's weird. I mean, if you're a king, um, kings normally ride like, like white horses, war horses, not, not a donkey, all right? Some of you might be like, donkeys, like, aren't those like kingly? No. Donkeys are horrible. Donkeys are exactly what you would assume a donkey is. There's nothing majestic or beautiful about a donkey, all right? And this is what Jesus is doing, is he's purposefully asking his disciples to get a donkey, and this is what Jesus is going to ride in on. Why? Why does Jesus choose a donkey? Like I said, everything in Jesus' life is being lived out as a role. He's role-playing. He's living out a script, the scripture. So I want you to take a look at the next verse that we'll be taking a look at that Jesus actually quotes from and seems to be enacting from. It's a prophecy out of the book of Zechariah, which was written several hundred years before Jesus, Zechariah chapter 9, uh, verse 9, and then later on, verses 16 and 17. Uh, first of all, in verse 9, it says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. So this is a prophecy foretelling that one day a king, a king would come. Now most Jews already recognize that this king was David. We know this because, again, take a look at uh, Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 11, uh, verse 10. It says this, um, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. So in their minds, they think of the king as being the kingdom. There's no other kingdom. There's no other kingdom which they would have been familiar with. The only kingdom that all Jews would have been preoccupied with would be the kingdom of David, the kingdom that comes from the lineage of David. So in this prophecy, Jesus is saying, I've got to live this out. I need a colt. I need a donkey. Because that's what the king rides in on. It's a pretty bold statement, huh? Jesus is like, I'm the king. And he could go around and say, like, what's up, guys? I'm the king. And he does say that from time to time. But usually what Jesus does is he says it through parables what he's doing here. He's saying, go get me a donkey. And as they do, they're going to begin to realize that Jesus is actually enacting, living out Old Testament prophecies. But this is where it gets absolutely amazing because in verse 16, it goes on even further with the more fullness of the prophecy as all of this would have been connected. And when Jews would have later read this, because it's, uh, I mean, it's possible that the, uh, the disciples would have understood this immediately. It's possible. But it's also likely that they would have not have put all of this together until after Jesus rose again from the dead. Either way, later at some point, they would have all figured it out. It all would have made a connection. But later on in verse 16, here's what it says. On that day, what day? The day that the donkey riding king comes into Jerusalem. On that day, the Lord, their God, will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown, and they shall shine on his land, and for how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. So what Jesus seems to be very clearly implying is that these two Old Testament strands of one day there's going to be a king that's going to come, he's going to rule after the lineage of David, and one day the glory of God will be restored into the temple. Jesus seems to be redefining all of this around himself as if to say, I am not only the coming king, but I am also the incarnate God in one. That I, your creator, have come to also be your savior. Absolutely amazing. This is what Jesus is saying here. Whether or not they fully got that at that particular moment, we don't know. In fact, probably likely they didn't get it because later on in Jesus' ministry, on the road to Emmaus, after Jesus rose again from the dead, he was speaking with the disciples He's like, why are you guys all gloomy and downcast and bummed out? And the disciples are like, didn't you hear what happened in the past few days? The one that we thought was the king, the Christ, the king of David, he died. And then Jesus goes on and he says, don't you know what the prophecies say? That that king, even though he must die and suffer, he'll rise again? That this is what's meant to be fulfilled. This is all part of the package. This is all part of everything. God's plan from the very beginning that God would become king and this is the way that God would become king, that God will take upon himself glory, but the glory that God's gonna take upon himself is not gonna look like the typical glory or the stereotypical glory that's surrounding pharaohs or Caesars 
or any other leaders of the world that the glory that God will take upon himself is a radically different glory. And when Jesus comes into his utter glory, it's not that he'll be robed in a beautiful robe or crowned with a crown of jewels, but that when Jesus enters into his ultimate glory, what glory will ultimately look like for him. It's not a crown with jewels, but a crown of thorns, and not a kingly throne, but a villain's cross. That's what Jesus will define as to what his kingdom will look like. Jesus seems to be saying very clearly by this action that not only is he the coming king, but he is also the coming of the glory of God all in one package. The second thing that we see in terms of question is this, is what was his followers' response? What was his followers' response? And we see basically two things. Uh, The first thing is what they did. We see them doing something. And the first thing that we see is that they spread their coats and they lay down palm branches. Now, why did they do this? Now, you know, a lot of historians kind of figure, you know, try to ask questions of why this happened. And most believe that really what this is, is that this is a way of basically describing and, and honoring royalty. That they saw Jesus truly as the rightful king. That he's come back. That this king has come to rightly reclaim the throne of David. To end the exile. To overthrow the wickedness and the evil of the evildoers. And that Basically, this is the way of identifying that he is truly the rightful king. So they take their clothes, they lay them down, throw their robes down before him. They take these palm branches, wave them, and uh, it's a way of basically honoring uh, Jesus as the king. The second thing that we notice is not only what they did, but also what they said. And what they said is, as it's recorded for us, is they shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, or save now, glory to God in the highest. And so the point of the matter is, is that they're actually quoting from an Old Testament psalm. Psalm 118 is actually the psalm that they're quoting. I'll read it to you briefly. It says this. Save us, we pray, O Lord, our Lord. We pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of our Lord. And so what they're basically saying is that when Jesus is coming into town, they see Jesus as the king, as the rightful king of David. And so as Jesus is coming into town, they're looking at Jesus saying, save us. Again, to try to understand it from a first century perspective, are they saying, Jesus, save us from our sins. Save us so that when we die, we go to heaven. No. No. They were saying, save us from our oppressor, Rome. Save us from the evildoers, Rome. Save us from the wicked people, Roman guards. Save us from the exile that we're in, that we don't have freedom. Save us. Be our king. Do what good kings do. Establish justice. Execute righteousness. Judge the wicked. And what they fail to see, all, the, all along, Jesus has been redefining for them what true kingship looks like, ever since the very beginning. But they didn't hear it. They couldn't see it. They were blinded. They were blinded to their own aspirations, much the same way that you and I are oftentimes blinded. We have these ideas. We think of God as being like, our little servant to do anything for us whenever we want. That's the way oftentimes we think of God. Sometimes, we in the West, we can be like, I'll become a Christian because Christianity helps me become a better person. That's awesome if it does. But in other places in the world, being a Christian means you might die. You might be targeted. Or your loved ones, your family may be targeted, and they die in your place. But the reality is, is to be a Christian to trust Jesus, to see God as being king in your life, sometimes may have a price. In this particular sense, what we need to understand is that these people are basically saying, Jesus, save us. Save us from the evil oppressors of Rome. Save us from the wicked doers. And make us this great nation under the banner of this brand new kingdom. And this is one of the reasons why even Jesus' own disciples, they said, Jesus, when you enter in your glory, let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Jesus' whole rebuke to them earlier was, you don't even know what you're asking. Because my glory is not what you're thinking. Jesus redefines for them, completely redefines for them, what his kingdom is. Take a look at the next slide. Jesus' redefinition of kingship, or he radically redefines what kingship means. And on the cross, ultimately what you see is everything that he's been speaking about is completely enacted. Because on the cross, what you see is Jesus' kingship 
fully put on display like a billboard for all to see. Not only judging in himself the sins of the world, but also establishing a radical rebuke to all those who have these false ideas of what kingdom is, kingship is. Because what we see on the cross is we see the only one who has the right to even claim first place becoming last. On the cross, we see the rich one, the one of all wealth, losing his riches, losing his wealth, and taking on poverty. On the cross, we see the beautiful one being marred by carrying our shame. And on the cross, ultimately, we see true greatness being exchanged for being a slave. Jesus' redefining of what kingship is, kingdom is, is what you see put on display on the cross. His disciples didn't get it. Yeah, they responded to Jesus as a king, but in just a few short hours, they're going to actually abandon Jesus because their ideas of what kingdom is all about come into radical collision with the reality of who Jesus really is. In other words, they weren't really worshiping Jesus for who he claimed he was or how he revealed himself. They basically were following Jesus because he was a convenience for them. He was a means by which they can obtain greatness. Maybe this is where some of you are at today. This is one of the reasons, by the way, why some people fall away from having an experience with Jesus, but somewhere, some years down the line, radically walk away from Jesus. What I've oftentimes found is that sometimes people come to Jesus under false notions. They come to Jesus because they look at Jesus as a means of helping them with their simple baggage and stuff and their problems in life. And sometimes when Jesus doesn't sort through their trash and their garbage fast enough, they look at Jesus and they think, he hasn't done it for me, I'm done with him, and they walk away from him. That's not coming to Jesus as Lord, that's coming to Jesus as a means to your true greatness. You're coming to him so that you can be great. You're using Jesus, and if he is truly a king, you can't use him. You have to worship him if he truly is a king. You can't come to Jesus expecting him to somehow work for you. Does he work for you? Yes, he does. Does he serve you? Yes, he does. Does he service us? Yes, he does. He does all of that. But if that's the primary means by which you come to Jesus, you're not going to be saved. You're trying to rig your own support of salvation, and it doesn't work. And at some point, the fractures will become very obvious, and that whole support system you built up will break apart. And once it breaks apart, you will break apart with it. So the disciples, the followers of Jesus, shout, save us, save us. But in reality, they still had a very incomplete idea as to who Jesus was. And this leads us ultimately to the final question, really, which is, what is your response? What is your response? If Jesus really is a king, the king, or as the book of Revelation describes it, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, then how do you approach this king? How do you personally approach him as king? Do you see him as king? Do you worship him? Do you lay your life down before him? Do you give him everything? Or are you just using him? Are you using him as a means to what you really want? And I just simply say that not as any way, shape, or form, trying to bring shame or anything, but I want you to think about it because if we use Jesus as a means to get what we really want, we'll ultimately end up losing everything. But if we see Jesus as a means of rescuing us from our own sin, from our own shame, from our own poverty of soul and life and everything else, and we come to him seeing him as the source of life, not as a means to the source of life, but as a source itself, we'll be different. We'll be changed. If we see him as the first one who became the last, if we see him as a king who's all-powerful and almighty, but on the cross, if we see him as one who's full of love for you, willing to take for you your shame, your sickness, your sin, your judgment for you, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, because he loves you. If you can see him like that, then what you'll begin to discover is this is a king that can be trusted with everything. I get it. 
I get it, man. We, we live in a culture that is at worst, or I should say at best, cynical. We're just cynical, right? I'm cynical, right? I mean, if you get to know me, like, I'm cynical. I don't, I don't trust a lot of people, right? People come to me are like, oh, right on. I, like, I, I, I just don't buy it. Like, my, my meters are pretty well-tuned to that type of stuff, right? The point of the matter is, is that what happens in life is that we get hurt. We get burnt. And this might have been something oftentimes in any one of our lives, every one of our lives, where it may have been a relationship you were in, boyfriend, girlfriend, they burnt you, good friend, they burnt you, you thought they were going to be your friends for life, like BFFs forever, and then like three years later, like, they're like, I'm out of here, you stole my boyfriend, and you're gone, right, you hate each other, now you blog nasty things about each other, or maybe it was a pastor, a pastor let you down, or a church let you down, or a church family went through a church split, and your whole world collapsed as a result of that. You were in a marriage. Marriage crumbled, fell apart. Now you're all jaded. All men in your mind are like, they're all wicked guys. And what happens is you have this sort of cynical attitude or uh, a, a woman hurts you deep and now you have this mentality, I'm never going to trust another woman again. I get it. I totally get it. Totally understand it. But here's what happens. Something shrivels up and dies in us like that because we were made. We were designed to give ourselves away exuberantly and overwhelmedly to give ourselves away. And deep down in every single one of our hearts is this longing, this desire to find somebody, someone that would love us for who we are in spite of our flaws, in spite of those things that we're embarrassed of, in spite of those things that we know about ourselves, a little bit embarrassing, but I don't want to tell anybody because I'm afraid of how they're going to think about me. In spite of the fact that we have sin and we don't want other people to know about these little dirty, dark secrets or these skeletons that we have in our closets because the moment I tell people they might judge me, deep down, all of us want to be loved in spite of all those things. And we've lived through life and we've given ourselves away to somebody and they crushed us. But what Jesus says of himself. And the reason why we know that he's a king, that we can literally give him everything. You can give Jesus your heart because not only is he all-powerful, but he's all-loving. You might ask, to what extent does he love me? The cross. He became poor left his riches, became poor so that you who are actually poor can be made rich, wealthy in him. He left glory, took on shame, your shame, so that you who know nothing but shame can be clothed in white righteousness. And a God that has demonstrated his love to such a degree as this is a God that you can bank your life in and trust implicitly with everything. So I ask you, do you trust him? Is he your king? Do you know him like this? Or is he just a powerful, grumpy grandpa in the sky that needs to be appeased through religion? Do you see him as a loving savior that not only is mighty and powerful, but also lowly and humble to the point of bearing our own sin and shame? To the degree that you see that, he loves you like that, with that power, you'll be changed. You'll become a different person. And I want to finish with three specific thoughts to chew on. I didn't make this up. Tim Keller, one of my favorite preachers, said this. So there's basically three ways to live your life. I'm going to finish with this. The first way, as he describes it like this, is being religious. And this is the idea of seeing God and thinking, you realize you're very distant from God. You realize that there's something wrong in your heart, but the way to be made right with God is by obeying, doing good things, doing right things, obeying, and therefore, as you obey, you'll be accepted by God. This is, I would say, the majority of people who call themselves Christians. They obey because through their obedience, they hope to believe that God will actually accept them. 
They read their Bible a lot. They go to church a lot. They tithe. They go help old people cross the street. They go help out at soup kitchens. They do all sorts of things as simple means of somehow getting God to sort of uh, raise his eyebrow at them and kind of be like, good job. I like you. Come on in. I'll accept you. And uh, it's sort of the, he describes it as simply being the, uh, the religious way. The second way is he describes as being irreligious, meaning you don't believe in God, you may not, maybe you do, maybe you do believe in God, but you don't really care, you're not really interested, uh, you just live your life for yourself, uh, this might be like atheism, this just might be someone who just lives in sin, you just simply do what you want to do, when you want to do it, you're your own king, you are the king, so talking about a king, you're the king, like you have control over your life, you do what you want, when you want, how you want, you spend your money how you want, no one tells you how to do it, no one guides you, you're very closed off, if someone comes into your life, it might be a mom, dad, mentor, coach, somebody, they're like, hey, you should do this. You're like, ah, speak to the hand. I'm not interested in anything. You have to say, I'm king. I'm authority here. No one tells an authority or dignitary how to live their life, and I'm the dignitary, right? Some of you live your life like that. And, and the reality is, is that has its own flaws built in, because at some point, uh, you'll lose control. You'll at some point lose control. Here's the funny thing. If you're young and you live like that, um, there's this, this myth that it's going to keep perpetuating. You're going to live like that for a long time. There comes something uh, that's inevitable uh, that will completely shatter your myth of being in control. It's called age. Right? Uh, at some point, you'll begin to find your body starts breaking down. You get sick. Uh, things happen to you physically that you had no control over. And you're like, oh, I can't do the things I used to do. I can't spend money the way I used to spend my money. Uh, women don't look at me the way I used to be looked at. You know, you're losing, you're going bald. You're like, I don't know control of this. I'll like spray on them up. It's like all these weird things. You're like, everything's breaking down. You've lost control of your life. It's a myth. You don't control it anyhow in the first place. It's just a myth. All right, that's the irreligious way. The third way is trusting the gospel. And the way Keller describes it is this. I'm accepted by God at infinite expense to himself, therefore out of humility, I obey. In other words, you realize that what God has done for you as put on radical display when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, bringing together not only the coming of a future king, but also the coming of the glory of God in one, that God stepped into our world, took upon our flesh and blood, bore our shame, not because he had to, not because it was his rightful duty. That's what's on the job description of being God. You've got to take care of the people who mess up. That God didn't have to do any of this, but he desired to. And the desire that the Bible tells us is love. He loves you. In spite of your sin, in spite of those things that you're embarrassed of, in spite of the shame in spite of your past, in spite of the offenses that you've done to God, to other people, the hurt, the wounds that you've inflicted upon other people, the hurt, the wounds that have been inflicted upon you, God is not ashamed of you. This is the beauty and the picture of why Jesus came. To put in very vivid display the depth of his love on the cross. To the degree that you believe that, truly believe that, you'll be radically changed. You'll be both bold and humble at the same time. You'll be able to be excited about the fact that you are saved and changed and transformed, but humble because you realize you didn't do this. You didn't bring this upon yourself. This is one of the reasons why sometimes Christians or people that are not Christians, irreligious, look at they're religious, and they're like, I don't want to be Christian. Christians are jerks, they're hypocrites, and they are. Oftentimes can be. Because what you're oftentimes viewing are religious Christians, people who think that the way that they earn righteousness or favor with God is by working really hard, doing really good. And so therefore, because acceptance is based upon how they perform, how much they read their Bibles, how finely tuned they're able to get their theological gears in order, um, what they can do now, they can look at people, outsiders, people that don't think like them, don't believe like them, don't worship like them, don't pray like them, don't witness like them, don't do the spiritual religious things like they do. Now they feel as if they have reason of which to feel prideful and arrogant. 
You don't act like me. You don't pray like me. You don't read the Bible like me. Ha, you sinner. You know? And the reality is, is they don't understand the gospel. There's a fundamental disconnect with the gospel. But if you understand the depth of God's love and the depth of God's power infused, combined in the person of Jesus, coming into Jerusalem, riding lowly on a donkey for one specific purpose, to bear your sin, my sin, our shame, our judgment, because he loves us. That will rewire your heart. And you will be a passionate worshiper. I'm going to have the worship leaders come on up right now. We're going to finish. But what I want you to think about is the people of Israel, as they were there with Jesus, as they're walking into town, um, they're crying. Hosanna. And I, I just read it again. Just listen to it again. Here's what it says. It says, and those who were before and those who were followed Jesus, they were shouting. So they weren't just like, you know, like, Hosanna. Hosanna. You know, they were like shouting, like yelling at the top of their lungs. I mean, this was absolute pandemonium and chaos. It was, they were excited because in their minds, the end of exile has come. In their minds, the judgment of evil and wickedness has finally come to a climax. In their minds, the hope of the ages has finally reached its climax, its culmination in Jesus even though their view of what Jesus was doing is completely wrong, how much more can you and I look back at what Jesus did do for us and saying, Hosanna, come now, save the Lord, save us. That's what the word Hosanna means. Save us from our sins. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our addictions. Save us from anxieties. Save us from our sicknesses and our illnesses. Save us from those things that plague us, that crush us, that oppress us, that destroy us, that send us far from home and on into exile. Save us from those things because that's what Jesus has come to do. I'm going to pray. And what I want to do is I want to I ask for those maybe in their own heart, they kind of feel like God is working, stirring something in your heart, and you want to be set free. Maybe you're not a Christian here today. Every week we've got lots of people that come here that aren't Christians. And it's awesome. See, Jesus set people free. Maybe you've had some familiarity with being a Christian, but you still would describe yourself as being bound. You're not free. You're bound by sin. You're bound by addictions. You're bound by lust, covetousness. You're bound by money and debt or anxieties over money and debt. You're bound. You're not really free. You're not free to joyfully give money away because you're afraid if you give it away and you go into dumps. You're not free to give your time and energy away because you're bound by your job. You're bound by your own selfishness. You're bound. You're not free. Jesus has come deliberate. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask if you're here today, and you, like these people in this crowd, recognize Jesus as king, and you recognize Jesus as king, and you like to be set free, liberated from whatever it might be, and you want to turn trust in Jesus, and you'd like to be prayed for, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to pray first, and I'll ask you to reply or respond. God, right now, I just thank you for grace. Thank you for love that you have for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you came. And not only were you just the king answering these ancient prophecies to Israel, but you are, are also God in the flesh coming as king. Not just working through a king, but as the king. God has become king. And if you today, Lord, are king, what does that look like in our lives? It ought to look like you liberating us, setting us free from these things that are bound us. Maybe for some of us, we've been bound for years. But today, Jesus, I believe you desire to break open your kingdom upon our lives and begin to set us free. So if that's you, anything at all in your life, sin, rebellion, covetousness, lust, sickness, fear of sickness, fears, anxieties, if those are your master, you like to be prayed for, have others pray over you, that you would have Jesus as your one true master that gives you life and freedom. I'd like you to stand up right where you're at. All I want to do is pray for you. 
nothing weird. We are a family. We're a church. There's no judgment. There's no criticism here. We love you. This is a family. Thank you for standing. It's tough. I know that. It's hard. Thank you. I just want to pray for you. Sometimes this is going to be the most difficult thing to just stand because you're basically standing up in front of a bunch of people. You're making yourself vulnerable. Appreciate that. It's awesome. Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. This is... Nothing magical about being prayed for, nothing magical about having people lay hands on you, but it is a step in the direction of basically admitting, I'm bound. I want to be free. Would you pray for me? Anybody else? Just stand up right where you're at. Awesome. Thank you for standing, guys. I know it's tough. Good, good. Appreciate that. Anybody else? We're family here. We love you guys. Anybody else? Just give you one more second. If you see someone standing and you're sitting by them, would you, would you mind standing up around them and just laying hands on them? Just grabbing someone, laying hands on them. Um, we're going to lay hands on you right now. Um, I'm going to pray over you, and you guys can agree along, but if, if you're laying hands on someone right now, you can, you can even right now yourself just begin to pray over them right now. Pray loud so they can hear you. Anybody that's standing uh, stood earlier that wants prayer and doesn't have anybody laying hands on them, raise your hand so people around you can see you. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to pray. You can even begin right now to pray over these people. Just pray that God would make himself real. Pray that Jesus would be real to them in their heart and set them free. Uh, Father, right now, we just thank you for grace. We pray, Jesus, that you would set free people. Right now, Jesus, that you would come and save, come and liberate, and come and reveal your grace and your love pointing us back to the cross, allowing us to see what Jesus took upon himself for us because he loves us, not because he had to, but because he loves us. God, I pray that you would set people free from sickness and illness and fear of sickness or illness or anxieties that just paralyze them from debt, God, that might be oppressing them and pushing them down and keeping them bound unable to be joyful and unable to be generous with their money because they're bound. God, set people free. And for anybody here today, God, that are, aren't believers, aren't, and they're not Christians, and they've never been set free from an eternal sense of their sin and judgment, Jesus, set them free. Open their eyes. Help them to see the love of God that's been poured out through Christ into their life upon them. And God, that the way that you rescue us and the way that you bring us back from exile is that, Jesus, you have gone under that flaming sword for us. And by going under the flaming sword for us, you've created the way so that we can be brought back into paradise, brought back into right relationship with the God of life. So thank you, God, right now, as we pray this over these people. We're going to just finish by worshiping. We have a few more songs we're going to close with. Um, why don't we all stand right now, and we're going to sing. And here's what I want to challenge you guys. Look, the reality is this, is that these people of Israel, as they're watching Jesus come into town, they're anticipating Jesus to do something. That's not us. I mean, in a sense, we can look back and say Jesus has already done something. So here's, here's my question to you. What has Jesus done in your life? to set you free, to liberate you, to change you, to fundamentally change who you are. And what's the right response to that? If these guys, they're expecting him to save them, and they shout and they sing, Hosanna, save now, what should be our right response if Jesus has done that? What, what type of emotion should be in this room? Some people are like freaked out by emotion, like, oh, should be too emotional. Why? What better person should we expend emotion upon than God, right? I mean, the, the reality, like the rest of you guys are like all indie, like, oh, yeah, whatever, that's true. <laughs> yeah, I intellectually agree with that. That's our problem. I mean, look, the reality is, is that he's a great God and he saves us, he rescues us. And my challenge to you as we worship, as we finish, I want you to think about the greatness of God. I want you to think about the emotion that was there when Jesus came into the city on a donkey as they were throwing palm branches and their jackets down in front of him, expecting him to do something. We can look back from history and say, we know that Jesus has done something. What has Jesus done for you? How has he changed you? Let's respond to him like that, amen?
sing to him. And that means raising our hands to him. That means raising our voices to him. For some of them might be getting on our hands and our knees in humble adoration to him as a king, confessing idols, confessing sin, confessing secret things that everybody else, nobody else knows about. But God does, and he's calling us to be free from that. This is where true change comes when we recognize Jesus as king and we proclaim him as king. So my challenge to you as we sing, as we finish, sing to him as if he is not just any king, but a king that died bearing your sin, your shame, and ultimately was vindicated by God by being raised again from the dead by the power of God. And that power of God that raised Jesus from dead is at work alive in you right now who believe. Amen? I mean, this is absolutely amazing stuff. So we're going to sing. Let's worship. Let's finish up with just loud shouts of praise and honor to our God.